Hello, and welcome to Giants of Gene Therapy. I'm Hans-Peter Kiem, president of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. My guest today is Dr. Luigi Naldini, another true giant in our field. He has achieved worldwide renown as the pioneer of lentiviral vector-based gene therapy. Dr. Naldini is a professor of cell and tissue biology and of gene and cell therapy at the San Rafael University School of Medicine. And he's also the scientific director of the San Rafael Telethon Institute for Gene Therapy in Milan, Italy. For the past 25 years, Dr. Naldini has pioneered the development and the applications of lentiviral vectors for gene therapy. This has led to a number of important clinical trials for patients with genetic diseases and also cancer. Today, Dr. Naldini continues to investigate new and next generation strategies to improve gene therapy and gene editing approaches. Dr. Naldini has been a mentor to many young scientists and he's also a prolific researcher and has received numerous global awards, including the Grand Officer of the Order for Merit of the Italian Republic, one of the highest ranking honors in Italy, the Louis Jante Prize for Medicine in Switzerland, and outstanding achievement awards from both the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy and the European Society of Gene and Cell Therapy. Dr. Naldini has been an ASGCT member since 2000 and served on the society's board and various committees. Welcome, Dr. Naldini. Thank Let's you. Let's start from the beginning. Tell us a little bit where you grew up uh, and you know about your family. Yeah, I grew up in uh, Torino, Italy, which is a northern uh, no, industrial city. Uh, I was the first of uh, five you now. Uh, brothers and uh, my family was of course was you know, uh, in good shape we I was the only one to really develop interest in, in biology and medicine my father was an engineer most of my brothers went on to that career and you know I was uh, fond of nature and animals and that's when I started to really grow an interest in uh, in biology when I started reading about molecular biology my high school you know readings like you know Jacob uh, Mono books on uh, DNA and RNA. That was a time when there was a discovery of biology becoming a true molecular science. That was really fascinating me, attracted to the to what was my then career. So, what were the next steps then? You know, after high school, um, when was it clear to you that you wanted to go to medical school? Well, I decided, in fact, to pursue more a scientific career. I was doubting between still physics versus you know biology, if you want. I was strongly advised to take medicine as the key, you know, topic for my university studies. At that time, it was more probably more common than today to take that route, even if you are primarily interested, you know, in, in the science, you know, in becoming a scientist. I'm glad I did that, but then so that was actually my my my, my next step, you know, medical school in in Torino. And then, and then you also did a PhD, and 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 this was also where did you do your PhD then? I was joined between Torino University and Rome. And Rome. And so, exactly. That was when I really started to do most of my time uh, research in the laboratory. Uh, and then I took from there, you know, postdoctoral stay in the US. Uh, I worked with Yossi Schlesinger on, on signal transduction at that time. That was when we were very excited about, you know, the growth factor receptor, receptor being tyrosine kinase and, and signaling, let's say, transduction signaling. That was before, you know, I, I became, of course, uh, fond of gene therapy. 
Right, right. So back in Italy still, did you ever consider or did you ever practice medicine, clinical medicine? Was that ever a consideration for you back then? Uh, well, I, of course, I did some. I was, was part of my right. tra training, of course. Uh, I did some early work as a general practitioner, mostly I would say to, you know, for, for a living. And I know the fellowship <laughs> career in science were not that robust. So, but then of course, when I moved to the US, uh, I, of course I quit uh, essentially right. any medical practice, uh, direct practice since then. So yeah, you initially went to Maryland, correct? As a postdoc yeah. and, and that was your initial work. And tell us a little bit then uh, what you did there. And, and then of course the next steps when you got into uh, vectorology. Yeah, the early work was really said, in signal transduction. I, I had developed some, you know, the first uh, antibody to phosphotyrosine. So we were doing Western blot to look for, for receptor activity. That's what ended up really to be to work with Josish Lessinger. He had moved from Israel from the Weizmann actually to initially to a biotech uh, an entity in Maryland and then of course to NYU. And that, that's where I pursued my, you know, say, say, final PhD and early postdoc work. I came back to Italy uh, as an assistant professor setting up my lab and with the idea to continue working on that. But then I faced the, the challenge to really develop a research of my own as compared to what was uh, the common research in most of the institution over there. And reading around uh, different uh, emerging science, I got fascinated by, by gene therapy with the idea, of course, uh, of not transferring genes. And, and that was uh, really the big next big choice in my career. So yeah, tell us about that. You went to the Salk Institute then, correct? Yes, I was, you know, I browsed through what uh, exists in different institution. And, you know, uh, that was one, of course, of the of the very relevant one with early, early you know, of course, steps in gene therapy, mostly vector development, you know, in, in the Verma lab had been made. Uh, it attracted to me, originally my idea was to, to, to build vector which would be targeted to, to those receptors I had studied you know, on. Uh, so there was a project I had proposed to Inder when I, when I finally got to his lab. I had to queue a little bit. It was always uh, too busy lab. And my first uh, uh, bench and desk was actually was the chemical hood in Inder's lab because it was crowded, but I took that anyway. And then I found that the project I was proposing was already taken by another postdoc. And so that's when we started to discuss what to do and then uh, there was this idea, of course, uh, this point was clearly that uh, those gamma retroviral vectors were you know, very relevant as tools, but also very inefficient in most of the cell type because of the requirement for cell division. And there was an upstairs uh, uh, work from the Dietrono lab uh, on HIV, which was discovering nuclear import of uh, HIV proviruses. And so that was the idea, I'll say, what if we could to a certain extent, you know, of course, uh, ride this deadly virus, very fearful, of course. Uh, but on the other hand, could we derive a, a, an integrating vector of much more efficient capacity? So that, that was the what really set me on the track towards lentiviral vector development. This was also, of course, great. I mean, initially, I think you were, you know, as you said, hoping to, to get better transduction modification of you know, non-dividing cells, which was, of course, great, you know, with the lentiviral vector. But then really, you kind of almost were able to foresee what was coming. You know, you then also worked on the, the improved safety features. And, and maybe, you know, can you tell us a little bit about how, how that came about with the self-inactivating uh, yeah, construct? You know, it's sort of odd. Of course, when, when I was... Um, joining the field and working on Lenti, as you said, the key driver of that work was uh, 
make an efficient vector. The concern about genotoxicity was less clear. There was, of course, knowledge of the, of the potential risk, but there was also widespread assumption that you know, a single hit of a vector would not be enough to realize that risk. Unfortunately, it, it was not true, as we all know. And so after a while, when, when we were already ahead in vector development, uh, the, the, the news from the first in you know, leukemia originated from previously treated gamma retroviral uh, gene therapy patient um, came out and there was a big scare about the genotoxic risk. I think we were to a certain extent lucky if you want, because out of the concern of working with HIV, which was a pathogenic virus, we had done as much as possible to dismantle now the viral genome, to inactivate it, take away as much as possible from what was not needed including the self-inactivating design or taking away you know, those enhanced and promoted region in the LTR, which eventually were identified as key driver of genotoxicity. So I think it was a sort of, a, if you want, a byproduct of that effort to make a safer vector from the standpoint of replication competence, which end up also to impact on the genotoxic risk, which we prove, of course, after a couple of more years of work, also when I was back in Italy, to the work of Eugenio Montini in the lab, we really show it was in fact a safer vector from paradoxically, if you want, a safer vector. Yeah, that was such a critical though, uh, you know, development and advance at that time uh, that you were able to do that. I mean, that pretty much saved the field, quite, for, at least at that time. We had a lot of time available because, as you said, it was the whole field was sort of an old. And, and I think uh, one of the key, I think, idea there was that, you know, because there was been a sort of, a, if you want, a failure to recognize the genotoxic risk in uh, in earlier studies, it's difficult, of course, to, to, to see leukemia in mice by, you know, the low number of cells, the limited time of uh, observation. So with Eugenio, we reasoned that we would use instead the tumor-prone mice, you know, essentially to to increase the, 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 the sensitivity of the assay. And then we proved that there was this uh, higher incidence, faster incidence uh, of tumor when there was uh, you know, the gamma rate of transduction versus lengthy. Some no, was not initially received so well because people were telling us, well, your, all your mice get tumor anyway, so how can you say that your vector is safer? And then that argument was, of course, well, we knew the system is, is going to give tumors, but the, what we are looking at is the difference in timing. So right, I think right. that observation eventually held true in the clinic, luckily. So. Yeah. So, so uh, and when did you decide then to return to Italy? What was that process uh, for you? So that was, uh, of course, uh, a few years after the Salk. Actually, I was originally planning to go back to Italy. I, I, I was on leave when I was on the Salk. Uh, but then, you know, uh, the, the, the technology we had developed at the earlier stage was licensed by a biotech in the, in the Bay Area with the idea to further develop that. And they were, of course, also looking to scientists to take that project on. And I thought that the time that should be me. I mean, I say, why should I go back to Italy unless somebody right. else is working with you? <laughs> so I remember I called my wife. She was back in Italy already my, with my kids at that point. They said, well, I cannot come back. You know, you... <laughs> I have to go to San Francisco on the other end, and that so that, that was another couple of years in the in the biotech when we did develop the, the, the technology into what is the current you know, uh, third generation. We did all the assay and so, and then uh, actually at that point the scare about the the genotoxicity issue came out. Mm -hmm. So in the company, not as usual happens from overnight there was essentially the idea of. Of, of closing those projects. Uh, the CEO of the company said, this is too scary for us to go on. 
At the same time, I was already ready to go back to academia. I thought my, my main role in the company was uh, almost done. And so I did uh, take, you know, there was in the university, I, I had, of course, uh, uh, you know, uh, I was not, not anymore on, on the hired by university, um, but at that time there was a new opening for a professorship. So I took that and went back to Italy. And that was then what year did you go back? This was after five years, and it was, uh, five, yeah, it was I think 25, 25 years ago. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then you went uh, back to uh, to Milan, and uh, I initially went back. I initially went back to Torino as a social professor, where I set up my lab working on gene therapy. We started to move on. I remained linked to the company for some time because I really wanted to maintain the possibility to bring back to Europe also the the technology, which we did also in, together, you know, with, with uh, Patrick Burg in France. So we, we did somehow manage to move uh, all what has been done over there. And then I started to, however, realize that it was been a challenge for me in Torino to set up the clinical translation capacity, which instead was available in Milan, the San Rafael Institute, where they had been already working on the ADA skid, you know, using the gamma ray throw. And so I was actually started to, to talk to them. I, I became, you know, initially consultant and then by then I started to move there. And then I eventually moved to Milan after three years in Torino, again with my family <laughs> at that time. And then we, since then, I have been working there where I, of course, I found the best, you know, environment for the, for really moving the technology into robust clinical testing and then all the work we have been doing since then. Yeah, you've obviously set up an incredibly successful uh, team now. Tell us a little bit about uh, that, uh, the San Rafael Italy Thon Institute. Um, how did you envision this early on to expand it? And was it more difficult in, in Europe or Italy than maybe in the United States at that time? I think in that time, the San Rafael Teleton was quite in a unique position. I would say mostly thanks to the vision of uh, Claudio Bordignon and also Maria Grazia Roncarolo, who, who there initially had set up this, this capacity uh, for translational you know, development. They really had uh, been keen on having a strong clinical uh, unit focusing on early you know, transplantation and early trials, together with some also capacity for manufacturing you know, through a spin-off at that time, which was Molmed. So there was this uniquely available expertise really close to the, to the laboratory space. Of course, I brought all the science and technology I've been developing. It was really a match to the existing you know, expertise. And I think this still remains a very leading uh, component of, of our institute, uh, really putting together clinicians and scientists from the very beginning of a research project, sitting at the table and you know, having a you know, clinician giving you the time, having to discuss uh, early on when you have some ideas, whether this would ever be applicable or not, whether this would really meet or not uh, the, the need of the patient in that specific scenario. Uh, I think this is, this is uh, to a certain extent, has been, uh, it was clearly uniquely uh, available at that time. And today, of course, this is what many other centers have developed as well. And I think it's a key for the success of our science, right? To have that capacity. So, I mean, as you also know very well. No, absolutely. You're so, so right there. So you've grown to how many people do you have now in your institute? So the San Rafael Teleton Institute is about 250 people. There are uh, 15 uh, PI uh, with, with their own research units, uh, uh, two clinical uh, uh, research units uh, by Alessandro for the pediatric unit and by Fabio Cicceri for the adult. 
and a number of core facilities which support the translational work, you know, really like a GLP capacity for, for biodistribution studies, vector integration unit for monitoring insertion, immunological core, pathology, those type of uh, important support for enabling really the bench to bedside move of the, of the research projects. What do you think were the biggest successes for uh, with lentival vectors? Um, and, and where do you see the limitations before we go into sort of the next generation approaches? <laughs> well, I think now we can say that they, they really made a hit in the clinic, and mostly, of course, through hematopoietic stem cell engineering. I think the combination of more efficient and safer from the standpoint of genotoxicity gene transfer is providing substantial benefit in a, in a, in a growing number of genetic diseases, uh, whether immunodeficiency, metabolic disease, hemoglobinopathies. Uh, I think that there is an established uh, uh, you know, success there by long-term follow-up, more than 10 years, hundreds of patients. So this is extremely, I think, rewarding uh, for the technology. Um, similarly, they have been very efficient in T-cell. Of course, in T-cell, there seems to be less of a concern for the genotoxicity side. Gamma retro has also been used, but the lengthy are also providing, I think, more versatility. So that's the key places today. Um, I think there's a space for applying lengthy uh, as well in vivo, like we originally did, uh, by the way, uh, looking in the brain. I think uh, liver, uh, muscle, and brain are there to where to exploit the lengthy as well. Of course, we know AAV is there, but there's a lot of unmet need as well. So this is something we are looking forward. On the other end, of course, lengthy integrates random, semi-randomly in the genome. So there's always an inherent risk of genotoxicity, despite all, I think, you know, the design uh, features that we have discussed. Uh, ideally, if we could target insertion to a specific site, of course, we would have a much, you know, precise uh, output and also potentially safer. We cannot do that with lengthy. Unfortunately, we we, are, we can do that with genome editing, where most of the people are doing this, of course, we, including us now, uh, together with new challenges. So, so do you think I mean, will gene editing and these next generation gene editing technologies uh, replace the use of lentivirus vectors, do you think? Well, it may, eventually, I think not now. As I said, I think we should leverage on the long uh, clinical uh, testing of lengthy versus. So we still have to check uh, gene editing. I mean, gene editing seems to be very promising at early uh, results. We have to look more in the, in, in the long-term follow-up if those uh, edited graphs remain robustly uh, polyclonal, for instance, as, as we see with the lengthy. The other thing is, is uh, editing works extremely well at the moment uh, for gene disruption. Uh, for gene correction, we may consider new approach like gene edit, uh, gene base editing or so, but that's maybe limited to certain correction of a few bases, but uh, long range editing, integration of new, no, no, like uh, cDNA, which is currently the most uh, feasible approach to most uh, to correction of most genetic diseases, which there are multiple mutations to correct. You cannot have you know, a single therapy for any mutation. I mean, this remains a challenge to, for, for, for conventional gene editing in terms of efficacy and, and, the, and the outcome of the break. So length is still there, I think, as an alternative. So we have to work on that. We, that's what we do now in the lab. We work on gene editing. Of course, uh, we, we hope to test in the clinic as well and to figure out what are the relative pros and cons. 
So, of course, many of the diseases, you now we and everyone targets, you know, for example, disease like sickle cell disease, they're much more common in low and middle income countries. So how do you envision that we going to be able to bring this sort of promising yeah. gene therapy, gene editing uh, to these uh, people and these patients? Uh, there's yeah. about one and a half million patients with sickle cell disease uh, globally, uh, but very likely less than 1% will, will have access to to promising ex vivo gene therapy uh, approaches. Honestly, that's that's really a huge issue. I think this is one of the things which really, uh, on the one hand, we have you know, this sort of a reward, uh, uh, say we, we manage to, to, to develop a new treatment. On the other hand, say we do see that this is so difficult for, for patients worldwide to access them. Of course, as we, as we all know, this treatment comes with some of the highest cost ever. And despite the fact that this being once and done, they could be ideally suited also to country when there is, of course, less developed health system rather than the need of a continuous no, replacement treatment of care, the possibility to provide once the treatment, maybe in a specialized center, and then the patient of benefiting potentially lifelong, I think is ideally suited. So I think that's what we have to fight for. Whether this can be achieved ex vivo as currently is done in the clinic, or maybe in the future directly in vivo, which is more challenging, but again, science is moving toward that direction. We love to see, but I think we have to start fighting for, uh, for moving towards that. On the other end, establishing center that can provide uh, this treatment to those countries as well. And once, I think this is feasible. And secondly, trying to work on, on price and access, you know, together with, you know, charity uh, countries, nations as to figure a way to, to allow this without you no know, jeopardizing, of course, uh, innovation, without, of course, uh, still providing the reasonable reward to the company we are, which are engaging into this development as well. So I think it's a, it's a difficult field. We have to move carefully. Cannot really claim there is a simple solution. Yeah, no, I I, I agree. Uh, how important is it, uh, you know, for these gene therapy studies now to really uh, have uh, industry involved? Uh, from your experience. Obviously, industries where you would mostly say pertains to the development of a new drug and also mostly you know, making it available uh, on the market, right? So in principle, that, that's where you should do. On the other hand, there may be specific sector where this may not be doable the way we have been doing until now, in particular for rare diseases, where uh, most of gene therapy actually started from to validate, of course, uh, itself. And unfortunately, after that validation, the commercial interest in those treatments uh, becomes you know, much, much less. Uh, currently, you know, despite the high cost, uh, we are seeing companies, whether of mid-size or large size, uh, to essentially let it off you know, or, or close those, uh, you know, those therapies for which there is too limited you know, access uh, in terms of patient need. Uh, I think we have to explore an alternative uh, route there uh, making uh, maybe make uh, establishing center which can produce and administer in a non-profit ma ma manner those treatment to the patient in need with public of course funding uh, with uh, some sort of alleviation of the uh, regulatory requirement not of course to the detriment of safety but sometimes to the detriment of what you would expect from a commercial product so so I think we have to I think that's where the field is also moving both in Europe but also in the US. Uh, figuring out uh, an alternative path, at least for those uh, 
treatment and disease for which uh, a commercial, uh, no, standard commercial model of development doesn't apply anymore. Yeah. I mean, I, in particular, what of course comes to mind is ADA SCID, uh, where, you know, you guys have really shown uh, you just beautiful promise and success with this therapy. And of course, Don Cohen's group and others. Um, and then it, why do you think that disease, why, this gene therapy was not successful within industry? Well, because for that reason, I think uh, the, the, the really limited now, I mean, there has been, as you know, this, this, this uh, drug was approved in Europe as a first yep. active gene therapy. This is still using the, the gamma rate platform, but yes. has been uh, substantially safer in that in that disease as compared to other for reasons which are not entirely clear still. <laughs> and, and yet, you know, yet those, so although we have been providing that that commercial drug, still, you know, the number of patients is too low to continue support. And also the cost of that, which was initially agreed, that was when GSK, that was a big pharma, they were, I think, brave enough to negotiate a relatively low price as compared to the current standard, maybe with a view toward development of the platform towards other, other disease. But then a change in the management, essentially, you know, sell off this whole platform to a smaller company, which, you know, Orchard Therapeutic, which has a different, you know, of course, portfolio, and they have to benefit from every single treatment they are developing to the, to the maximum extent. So they decided not to pursue further. Now, this treatment is back uh, to the ownership of uh, Teleton, which was, of course, sponsoring it when we developed. And Teleton has decided it's almost ready to, to do it, to continue to keep that on the market. Now, Teleton becoming a, pro a producer of the drug itself, of course, under uh, this uh, scenario of a non-profit organization making the drug available. So that's where, again, we are experimenting here at this novel track I was mentioning before. Yeah, no, this is obviously very, very important. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to shift gears just a, a little bit and also ask you, you've been involved in the international summits on human genome editing. Yes. Especially uh, earlier this year, of course, again, you've participated. And I just wanted to get a little bit your thoughts on that. No, I think this year was mostly on somatic uh, gene editing. But of course, uh, you are familiar with uh, several years back with um, Ha Zhang Kui's uh, human embryo editing studies. And how has the field uh, since then evolved or thought about this? Well, I, I think, you know, I, as, as you know, I think that the, the, there was more reason to, to appreciate and discuss the actual. Uh, I would say also encouraging development in the field in terms of application of uh, gene editing to treatment of disease, us, of course, in, in the somatic cell. I, I think that, that there are, as I said, the very promising early results in sickle cell for ex vivo treatment. There are expectations for editing T cell in different ways to make allergenic product to improve uh, CAR T. There was early data on, on, on liver, no? direct silencing, uh, there's the new platform-based editing. So all of this remain, of course, a very good reason to, 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 to share those results uh, with a larger community together with the ethical and societal issue of the access, the cost, so the challenge facing. So I think this has become the, became the preeminent focus uh, of the meeting. Uh, so where the field is going and, 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 and I think, uh, in terms of science, uh, the biggest challenge that was put on, on view was delivery. I mean, as usual in the field of gene therapy, we always discuss delivery, right, from the very beginning. 
And again, delivering of editing machinery in vivo remains challenging. Of course, we can do it very well in animal models, but when you face clinical translation, this is not the same game. Uh, and so that's where uh, I think a lot, a lot of effort are seen. I, we just mentioned before, you know, gene editing stem cell, for instance, hematopoietic stem cell in vivo, of course, is very challenging because of the delivery, not because the, we don't have the tool otherwise. And so I think most of the summit went into that. In terms of the, uh, of the germline, I think, uh, again, there was more a realistic discussion of what are the actual, what would be the actual way to edit germline or germ cell or, or primordial, or, or, you know, depending where you would go, uh, which, which, at which level of the germline you would intervene. I think there is progress there on the research side. But at the same time, there is a clear uh, you know, uh, understanding, acknowledgement that, it, that no technology is ready for uh, actual testing in a human embryo or you know germ cell at this stage because of the still unknown uh, consequence of an edit uh, uh, throughout the genome we are realizing the risk so so i think that was the the final message of the summit still remain too early to consider clinical testing or germline on the other end good reason to continue and even more somatic testing of uh, editing uh, for different purposes, uh, uh, facing the, the, the challenges, but also realizing the, the successes tonight. Mm, yeah. It was nice to see, though, right? There was very good, I, I thought, international discussion and consensus on that topic. If, yes. You know, I think, nice. although, although, you know, one of the, also a light motif of the, of the summit is also to really bring different perspective, different vision from different culture, it's always an important. You always can learn from that. You know, right. learning from uh, from representative of not only of patient but also minorities, different culture and approaches. And as you said, there are some common, of course, uh, consensus on the general team. I say, but when, but when you go to more uh, specific aspect, there are emerging interesting differences. For instance, poor attention when we do when you work on, just to, just to make an example on on genome databases if you look at the representation of the different ethnic groups uh, this is very imbalanced as compared to what is found in the databases some of the some 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 you know ethnic population which are the majority of the world population are poorly represented in the databases so when you look for instance for a potential of target of an editor you are not seeing really represented the, the actual no, population as uh, from the world side view. And, and again, this, this is something we should consider from the beginning. Just this is a simple example, but there's much more to, there will be much more to mention here. Yeah. So what would you say? I mean, you've obviously built an, an, an enormous team and institute uh, there. What do you do in your own lab and your own group right now what sort of excites you the most uh, where do you want to go over the next few years so you know i, I think uh, again we still remain primarily concerned on uh, exploiting stem cell gene hematopoietic stem cell gene therapy we try to broaden its use also beyond uh, you know um, genetic diseases uh, uh, I think there's a lot of potential there for for making your cell or maybe some of the progeny of those cell Deliver, smart delivery cargo for, for treating acquired disease like cancer. So that's one area. So expanding application beyond the original uh, use, mostly in the cancer immunotherapy. And the other, as mentioned, is uh, leveraging on, uh, on gene editing approaches uh, uh, to really you know, uh, the, the assess the power of this new technology in terms of precision. And third, I think what we are doing is trying to alleviate uh, 
the, 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 the burden of current stem cell gene therapy, in particular, you know, key, you know the conditioning strategy that are required to make space for the engineered stem cell. And I think there's this possibility there. There's been a lot of work around, including from your lab. I mean, we are discussing on this as well, Hans Peter. How can we really change the way we make space for those uh, infused cells? And I think that's something we are working on. And um, I think in, in, a, in a technology we are leveraging on is RNA technology. I think RNA is, is going to transform uh, the gene therapy field as well. It has done already, it's doing on a vaccine, right? But I think the, the transient delivery in a manner which has no toxic risk of a, of a potentially very powerful function is all to be captured in a different area, including, for instance, for uh, engrafting advantage, as we have been doing here, but also in many other areas. So that's mm -hmm. some, what, what we are working on now. Well, that's wonderful, yeah. So you've, you've mentored many scientists and trainees. Um, what would you advise young scientists or trainees, students today? Well, of course, you always look for, for enthusiasm and commitment here. So, I, of course, I always think that this area of science we are working on, the translational, if you want, is extremely rewarding because you have a combination of basic science and discovery together with the possibility to really see the application and trying to balance this too. I think it's important to work on both sides as well. I mean, to maintain that balance, whether or not it's a trainee or even more if you are an independent scientist, capture capture, I think, innovation from technology, but also from science, no? I mean, not be blind to, or to not, I mean, continue to be open and interested in the broader science development, where I think the solution to your problem may come, no, some way inadvertently. At the same time, maintain, a, 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 if you are in this field, a, a, a careful attention to the, to the final, not translational clinical outcome, not to take unrealistic route. So, so you will, as usual, we, we, I would recommend focus on a project with this strategy of being open to, I say, scientific no? uh, knowledge, innovation, but at the same time, focus on your experimental strategy and keeping in mind the ultimate goal. Is it realistic? And, and checking this very, very so often, maybe not yourself, but also not discussing with others, am I doing something which makes sense? Would this be ever be able to be translated you know, into some non-clinical therapeutic approach? I think to maintain that from the very beginning, uh, this sort of a balance, uh, science and, and development, translational and, and innovation, is, is where we, we can do the best, uh, you know, science and career. Great, yeah. So with your busy schedule, with your institute, your lab, your traveling, do you yeah. have any time to do anything in your spare time? Yeah, of course, I try to say some of that. I think it's important for your health, for your brain function as well. <laughs> I always try to, uh, and I think, you know, I do find actually fun in a lot of other things. I like to, to of course, to read, to listen to music. Uh, I, I'm very fond of art, you know, contemporary art. I like to go to fair. I'm also an enthusiastic collector. And art, that's where some of the, my my earning goes sometimes. But uh, <laughs> I think it's very nice to to go, but I don't to really see other, you know, other you know, manifestation of a uh, human now, creativity, now, of course, and art is a primer there. Music okay. as well. And music any, per well. any particular artists? Well, I, I like a lot. Of course, I know my, most uh, uh, Italian um, contemporary. It's a European contemporary art. I, 
I'm very fond, of course, of abstract expressionism. Uh, not easy to collect at this point. This is, of course, <laughs> so you have to go more into the more new ones. Uh, but I think there are uh, now paintings, uh, you know, uh, are, are always a sort of back now in the interest. You know, there's been a time it was like installation, big no museum structure. I think now we see back uh, interest in tomorrow now the actual painting, which is more affordable to enjoy, sometimes to collect. And, and the, the art scene is very, very lively. Of course, here also from. Uh, different countries and culture as well. Although I am more based on European and American, I would say. Yeah. Oh, wonderful, yeah. So anything else I should have asked, Luigi? Oh, I think we discussed a lot. I look forward <laughs> to the upcoming meeting, right, in Los Angeles. Absolutely, very, very much looking forward to that and seeing you there. Yeah. So thank you very much, Luigi, for taking the time today sure. and see you next week. Thank you, Aspita, so much. Bye-bye to you and everybody who has been listening to us. <laughs>